You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. What this does is it just lifts the lid on this kind of pretense. You can see it for what it is, because it has laid bare the kind of inner workings of the party's approach, and from the top. So it is pretty significant, and that's why the party's furious. A leak in China reveals a shocking attitude towards troublesome provinces. My guests Isabel Hilton and Jeffrey Howard will discuss that and the day's other news, including why is America so right-wing, and babies cry in the accent of their mothers, how much does the brain absorb without us even knowing, plus. In the race to be the Democratic presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg is a whopping 9% ahead of more experienced rivals like Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Needless to say, this is a momentous shift. The paradox at the heart of the US electorate. I am Marcus Hippi. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Jeffrey Howard, who is a political theorist at University College London and an expert on US politics. Let's start today with a look at China's repression of the Uyghur minority. The Chinese government has reacted furiously to the publication of hundreds of pages of sensitive Communist Party documents by the New York Times. The documents link President Xi Jinping to the Chinese mass detention centers in the far west of the country. Isabel, what do you think are the most significant revelations these papers offer? Well, tying Xi Jinping directly to it. Um, also, you know, the rehearsal of what to tell anxious students returning to their families is very... Uh, it's a very direct human story there. You know, these kids go back from university, their families are missing, and they're, they are coaching the officials on what story to tell. And what this does is it just lifts the lid on this kind of pretense that this is, uh, you know, all about work training, retraining, benign for everybody's good. You can see it for what it is because it, it has laid bare the kind of inner workings of the party's approach and from the top. So it is pretty significant and that's why the party's furious. They haven't denied that these, as far as I've seen, that these documents are genuine. They've simply uh, been, you know, outraged at the the fact that they've been leaked. But the other interesting thing, I think, is that it, it the fact that these were leaked, and it's not the first time that high-level documents have been leaked from, from inside the party, is an indication that there is dissent in China about this policy, that people are unhappy with it, and unhappy enough to risk really quite severe consequences if this if the authors of the agents of this leak are ever traced, they will end up in jail for leaking state secrets for the rest of their lives. Jeffrey, what is your impression? What is Beijing's or President Xi Jinping's master plan here? I mean, I completely agree that the reports are striking. The fact that the students coming home from university were effectively threatened, were told that they best not make much noise, they best cooperate, or they might risk 
increasing the detention sentence faced by their family members um, is extraordinarily chilling. Um, in one of my classes recently, I've been teaching uh, John Rawls's political philosophy, and John Rawls distinguishes between a just society um, and what he calls a decent society. And his idea of a decent society is one that, well, maybe it doesn't live up to our full liberal Western ideals of justice, but it's good enough that it's a member of good standing in the international community. And I think for a long time, people try to convince themselves that China counts as a decent society, that it may not live up to what we take to be the right principles for organizing society. But when stories like this come out, it just reaffirms that this is a society that is, or a government that is completely at odds with our most basic values of liberal democracy. It really is hostile to the most fundamental commitments to human rights. Isabel, how do you explain Beijing's attitude to problematic provinces and ethnic minorities? Uh, this has gone through several iterations. Uh, you know, one one early constitution in the 20s took the view that they should be allowed to uh, vote on independence or not. Uh, that didn't last very long. And by the time we get to 1949, we have a policy of nominal autonomy for uh, for minority areas. Mao Zedong once said, you know, uh, the, um, the Han have all the people and the minorities have all the land, which gives you some idea of why uh, the what are effectively, you know, 18th century military conquests by the Qing dynasty have been incorporated into the People's Republic. This is not historic China. So in the last few years, you, you've had a rise of um, ethnic Han nationalism. And the notion that instead of allowing uh, minorities to have their own language, culture and uh, autonomy, they should be integrated into the superior culture, this being Han Chinese culture. Um, clearly, this doesn't go down very well with the uh, with the Tibetans and, and the Uyghurs and indeed the Mongols. There are a lot of people who don't share the history of the Han Chinese and don't feel and don't identify with the Han state. It's particularly acute in Xinjiang for a number of reasons. There's a lot of oil and gas in Xinjiang, uh, but also it's a, it's a key stop on the Belt and Road, the, the, you know, the journey to the, to the west of the, of the infrastructure links that Xi Jinping is trying to build. And since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the example of Kazakhs uh, and Uyghurs across the border in mm. the former Soviet Central Asian republics becoming independent sent really quite loud alarm signals to Beijing. Jeffrey, the kind of repression of ethnic minorities we see in China is, is not unique. We have seen something like this in other countries too. But looking at this ideology of of integration, has it actually ever worked? Um, I think that's important that the Beijing has in mind a very particular counterterrorism strategy, and that certainly is the discourse around what they're using to justify these particular atrocities, that it's part of cleaning house in order to ensure that extremist ideas are rooted out. Now, we know that in extremely large countries where... Um, uh, the center tries to exert um, force on uh, outer regions of the country, that this is often unsuccessful. Um, but of course, it's just a matter of how much power the the center has. Um, it has been striking that in the, the backlash from uh, Chinese officials over the last week, they've taken to calling the New York Times reports on this fake news, echoing mm -hmm. a, a, a slogan from the president of the United States playbook. Um, and I, I think that is a harrowing part of this. But those inclined to look at this and say that, well, 
this is tough stuff, but it is justified are appealing to that counterterrorism narrative. And, and that's something we've seen across many different societies um, over the past hundred years, that when we are in the space of counterterrorism policy, people tend to think that the ends justify the means, that it is acceptable to do things that will no doubt strike many people as heinous for the sake of protecting national security. And I think that's the paradigm that, that officials in Beijing have, have fallen into here. Yes, but it's completely disproportionate and counterproductive. I, and and you know there was there really was not much terrorism to speak of in in Xinjiang. It, it's uh, there have been more incidents in in the past few years, largely in response to very harsh practices by by the center and by a great deal of inward migration of Han Chinese, these these minorities are now a minority in their own in their own territories, which they weren't before. So there's a there's a buildup of resentment, but on the whole the culture of Xinjiang was really not a radical or or an extreme one. It will be far more radical and extreme now. So now, thanks to these leaks and these revelations, we, 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 we know better what's happening in China and in that region. But Jeffrey, do you think something's going to change? Um, I don't think much will change as a result of external pressure. China has too much leverage. It has too much bargaining power um, for uh, the international community to make much more than a verbal fuss about this. Um, I think it seems quite unlikely that the international community would join together to crack down on China, um, say, through significant economic sanctions. I could, of course, be be wrong about that. I would hope that the international community would come together um, and step up pressure on China. I think um, China would not be wronged by those sanctions. I think it would be fully appropriate to try to punish China for what it's done. But I think it's probably unlikely. I think one of the most extraordinary aspects of this whole sorry tale is the fact that the Islamic majority countries have been either silent or supportive. Pakistan has endorsed this. Uh, the the Association of Islamic States have, have, have really been completely passive on this. And that's pretty depressing. Isabel, you mentioned that those leaks are an example of, of dissent somewhere in the Chinese administration. Well, looking at things, things more widely, do you think there are liberal voices somewhere in the administration? I do. And, and you know, if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years, actually since the founding of the People's Republic, there has been a continuing fight between between hardliners and liberals in China. And it keeps coming back. It comes back in every generation of politicians. Uh, at the moment, the hardline predominates. But if you look back to, you know, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, you see very, very different tone in Chinese politics and very senior voices, including party secretaries and prime ministers arguing for an end to press censorship and greater democratization. Um, and when these leaks happen, and remember the Tiananmen papers got leaked um, over a long period of time, and we know quite a lot about the inner uh, discussions in the party on these episodes where, where there are leaks, it's quite clear that, that, you know, the party is a portmanteau party and mm -hmm. there are very different trends within it. At the moment, the hardline has a very fierce hold, so it's not visible. But, you know, one day uh, I'm pretty sure it will, it will return. It always has. Well, looking at, for example, what's, what's happening in Hong Kong now, how do the mainland Chinese view liberal values like freedom of speech or human rights? Well, the, the, they are sympathetic to 
human rights and liberal values. However, um, in the case of Hong Kong, the government has made strenuous efforts to persuade uh, the the people of China that this is all tr- this trouble is all got up by the evil foreigners. So you know the black hand of the United States and of Britain and of anyone you like. You know, throw in George Soros, throw in anyone who is you know the likely the likely target, um, and that this is all a plot to. Sp- China. So the counter-narrative from Beijing is about, this is about the integrity of our nation. Uh, you know, the usual suspects are at it again, and we must defend. And these troublemakers, the other narrative is that these troublemakers are violent. It's a bit like, you know, the, the story on Xinjiang, these are dangerous, violent people. Now, a lot of people will believe that. But again, you, you know, messages do come out with a very different tone from time to time. They mm-hmm. don't last long. But on the Chinese, uh, on Chinese social media, you you do see these flashes of hang in there, Hong Kong, we're with you, coming out before they disappear. So again, it's it's a mixed picture. We'll be moving to the US shortly, but just one final question to you, Isabel. Looking at the Chinese administration's success, how much is it down to China's relative ethnic homogeneity compared to its size? Well, certainly minorities are very much in the minority. I mean, the Han is, uh, you know, the dominant uh, crowd. In Xinjiang's case... I mean, there is a lot of straightforward racism in, in you know, the, the Chinese, the Han Chinese view of uh, of Uyghurs, but but also of Tibetans. I mean, Tibetans, they regarded as, you know, not very, not good at personal hygiene, but pure in heart um, until the riots of 2008, where they began to see them as the enemy within. Uyghurs have always had a harder time. And, you know, Uyghurs will tell you long before this uh, particular emergency that they couldn't, you know, if they came to Beijing, they couldn't get hotel rooms. They couldn't. There was a lot of just routine racial discrimination. Isabel Hilton and Jeffrey Howard there will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Marcus. Smoke has covered Sydney as bushfires continue to rage across the region. About five million people live in the state capital of New South Wales, which has been affected by weeks of fires. Officials say that the air quality in parts of Sydney has now dangerously deteriorated. The leaders of the UK's two biggest political parties, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, are due to take part in a televised general election debate soon. However, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP won't be present after a last-minute legal bid to force their inclusion failed. And authorities in Los Angeles have stumped up for more than a thousand new trees. The city's mayor, Eric Garcetti, has pledged to plant around 90,000 of them over the next two years. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Ben. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Isabel Hilton and Jeffrey Howard. Let's continue to the US, where it's been suggested that some of the leading candidates in the Democratic primaries risk alienating voters with calls for structural change, basically for veering too far to the left. Jeffrey, do you think there is a point to this that, for example, demanding a functional public health care system might alienate voters? 
I mean, this was the suggestion the other day by Barack Obama in a speech he gave, and no doubt a widespread sense of discontentment with the Democratic field, a wary that the leading voices, Senator Elizabeth Bourne from Massachusetts, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, are too left to be electable against the president, um, has no doubt been what's motivated people like Mike Bloomberg of New York mm-hmm. um, to join the race recently, who's motivated Senator Deval Patrick, a, a moderate former governor of Massachusetts, uh, to join the race recently. Um Now, I think you put your finger on something quite puzzling here, which is that surely it's not radical, surely it's not extremist to advocate um, for a a system of universal health care. And of course, what's striking is that the Democratic Party generally is unified in the goal of getting everyone covered under universal health insurance. The divergences are about the means, how you you get there. Um, So Pete Buttigieg, who's the the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's now leading the polls in Iowa, believe it or not, again, ahead of Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, um, his system isn't, is, isn't Medicare for all, but Medicare for all who want it. And so the idea is you can keep your private mm-hmm. health insurance plan, but you can also have a, have a public option where you can go on government health insurance instead, which is, in fact, what Barack Obama had tried to do. And yet he's cast as moderate, whereas those who say, well, 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 you can't actually keep your private plan. You have to go on the, ins- on, on the government insurance plan are cast as these wild extremists, even though it's a quite subtle difference in the in the policy um, means and and really no difference in the policy goal. So I think what's really going on here is about perceived um, extremism and mm-hmm. also about the tone that people make or present their ideals. But let's contrast the U.S. to, say, the U.K. or other European countries. Is about how far right is the U.S. in comparison? I think it's way, way to the right. I mean, certainly in terms of the kind of opinion Opinion-forming media. So uh, there was a recent poll which I found rang rather true that people who get their news from Fox, from the Fox News, actually know less about politics than people who have no source of news at all. So mm-hmm. so reading nothing or watching nothing is a better option. It leaves you better informed. And that tells you really quite a lot about how how impressions are created and how, how you know, voters' minds are influenced by this absolutely extraordinarily kind of far-right... Uh, constant trashing and you know you, you I think however moderate or to the left they were they would be labeled as extremists once they emerged as the leading candidate anyway Obama was he's regarded within the party as a moderate but that's not what you know Fox News or 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 his opponent his right-wing opponents uh, said about him and what's puzzling I and I'd be really interested to know what you think about this that if you look at the polling on issues so on climate change it's now you know a majority of people are convinced and concerned about climate change if you look at the successes that the democrats had in the midterms those were radical successes how, how given that that these concerns are real and amongst the population. How do we get them to translate into votes, as it were, for a candidate who represents them? Because that seems to be the point at which, you know, there's a gap that they, they that these concerns don't translate into votes. Well, I think the current thinking in the Democratic Party is that they probably do translate into votes at the primary stage, but then may not translate into votes in the general election stage. Um, but even this question of 
oh, well, maybe Pete Buttigieg is doing well because he's a moderate. Well, he leapfrogged Joe Biden now, and Joe Biden is now behind Elizabeth Warren in, in Iowa, and Joe Biden is also a moderate. So it's not obvious, mm-hmm. right, that just being a moderate is going to be going to be enough here. Um, it's also striking that even though they both qualify as moderates, Pete Buttigieg doesn't have very much support among the African-American community, where Joe Biden does have um, an enormous amount of support. Um, and so I think, I think this issue is complicated, and I think you've put your finger on on something quite important, which is that there is an enormous amount of support for progressive policy positions. Um, what people, what some people seem to want, is that someone is someone who's able to defend those policy positions without coming off as divisive. Someone who's able to do it in a unifying way, and I, I think that's probably why Pete Buttigieg has has done well. Um, Contrast him with someone like Elizabeth Warren, who does have an extremely adversarial approach to her demeanor. Um, Now, I think there is some hint of sexism in the fact that she's picked up on that, whereas Bernie Sanders is just as adversarial and he's not picked up picked up on that nearly as much. Um, but but I think in this context, we need to distinguish between whether someone um, is progressive on, in, in the terms of their policies, um, but nevertheless has a kind of bring-people-together unifying tone in how they defend those policies. Well, Jeffrey, after we, as we just, just noted, um, compared to many European countries, for example, the U.S. is quite far in the right. How did we get here? Um it is very much a, a, a centrist country. Um, I think the Cold War plays an enormous role in the history of this. Um, the fact that the term socialist um, carries that intense stigma um, is clearly a relic of that particular period. All you need to do <laughs> to um, uh, sink the political chances of a particular opponent is to convince the electorate that they are um, a dyed-in-the-wool socialist. Bernie Sanders is a puzzling exception to this mm-hmm. um, general rule. He has long called himself a so- socialist. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez refers to herself as a, as a democratic socialist. But by and large, um, aside from those those exceptions that prove the rule, I, I do think the Cold War looms large here. It's also, there's this distinctly American allergy to tax increase that we really don't see in very many other developed democracies. So um, so Medicare for all, the idea that we abolish private health insurance and just have um, a government health insurance program is reasonably popular. But the idea that we do it by increasing people's taxes is really, un- really, really, really unpopular. And so Elizabeth Warren has had to go through all sorts of gymnastics coming up with, uh, very, quite frankly, odd policy proposals for how you pay for her Medicare for all simply so she doesn't um, have to say, yes, I will increase your taxes to achieve it, which is clearly what she would ideally want to do. But she knows that because of Fox News, that would likely be a, a, a soundbite that you would hear again and again and again. Do you think it's more important now than ever to have relatively far-left voices just to balance out what we hear, for example, from Donald Trump? Well, I think it, 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 that's a very good point. And I think that otherwise, you know, we're just being, you know, the the new normal is is way to the right of where it, or where it used to be. I remember under the first Bush presidency you know liberal was kind of a normal word and and the the right have spent 30 or 40 years making liberal sound dangerous and that that's a shift in american politics and i don't think that you can have a you know a healthy polity uh, with if you have extremes on one side you need you certainly need voices on the other strong voices on the other Jeffrey, as we as we mentioned already, in the race to be the Democratic presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg is ten percent of ten percent ahead of more experienced rivals Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Do you think he would be a feasible candidate to beat Donald Trump? 
Um, I mean, making predictions seems to be a fool's errand in this political era, but um, he's certainly someone who the people of Iowa, where this most recent Des Moines Register CNN poll was taken, um, are taking a really hard look at. But as I say, the African-American community is such an important constituency within the Democratic Party. There have been some concerns about um, his time as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, about potential problems with policing um, in the African-American community in that city. And I think that means that um, he hasn't been doing particular. That's just one reason why he hasn't been doing particularly well. So even if he goes and does a good job in Iowa, he does a good job in New Hampshire, um, there's still a serious question about whether he could emerge through the next primary, which is South Carolina, uh, with any success. Well, Jeffrey and Isabel, finally, today. Can the sound of baby's cry offer a hint about where it comes from? For the past decade, it's been widely accepted that a baby's cry is inflected with the accent of its primary caregiver. While babies have the capacity to form a range of noises out of reach to most adults, and by extension the ability to learn any of the world's languages, the melody and inflections of their cry are informed by the accents of their parents. Jeffrey and... Isabel, can you tell me where that baby we heard a short <laughs> clip of crying is from? Any guesses? No. <laughs> Sorry. I Croatia. No, it oh, was, of course. It, it, was, it was a Mandarin cry. Oh, thank you. Our, yes, well, I producer, let the side down there. Our yes. producer tells <laughs> us. Um, that's, that's another instance of the brain's incredible power to absorb information and act on it. Do we underestimate this capability as we operate in the world? Well, I think I think you need to distinguish between a, a baby picking up on sounds and imitating those sounds and having and 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 describing meaning to them. I mean, you know, it, the, there's a big gap as babies kind of learn what these sounds can do because the first cries are, you know, "Hey, mum, I need something." Mm-hmm. You know, that's 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 essentially what you're hearing. And the the idea that um, which, which I I find very interesting that languages all all languages have kind of patterns of sound as opposed to you know individual sounds, and that's what a baby can pick up even in the womb from listening to its mother's voice is extraordinary. Um, but it doesn't mean that the baby, you know, is is um, conspicuously a Chinese speaker or a Cro- Croat yep. speaker. Um, it's just an extraordinary um, insight into how these capacities do develop. Jeffrey, what does accent say about identity and what does the idea that is, is, is set so early say? Yeah, well, that's a that's a big question. I think. I mean, what what strikes me from this struck me from this story is first of all just how um, uh, attuned the fetus is to what's going on outside um, of the mother during utero. Um, uh, as someone who has two kids, uh, you know, that's certainly something that I was aware of, but I was never quite as aware as as this story makes clear. Um, the other thing that struck me as amazing is it's just a really cool finding of research. It doesn't have any obvious practical implications, um, but just as a kind of meta point about it, it's it's amazing what researchers are able to come up with um, and what can result from a system of the kind we have where we fund people to study interesting questions mm-hmm. that don't have any obvious payoff simply because it's interesting to find out more true things about the world. Have you ever found your accents shifting according to where you've lived? Oh, completely. In fact, my accent shifts according to who I'm talking to, actually, and I find there are particularly infectious ones. Um, but yes, it can be quite embarrassing. I, and But I, I just pick up accents and I find them hard to resist. 
Isabel Hilton and Jeffrey Howard, thank you. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about the paradox at the heart of the US electorate that might spell success for Pete Buttigieg. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today we've heard a bit about America's lurch to the right, but hope for the middle ground could be found in a hitherto overlooked candidate in Iowa at least. Monaco's affairs editor Chris Chermak explains. We got an anonymous whistleblower who says that Donald Trump did something wrong. Donald Trump, like Hunter Biden, says, I didn't do anything wrong. Forget the whistleblower. We have the transcript of the call and the president's remarks on the law. Wait, wait, before you interrupt me, Howard. An impeachment inquiry may be soaking up all the oxygen in the U.S., but two other striking political items have made the news in the past few days. The first, in the race to be the Democratic presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg is a whopping 9% ahead of more experienced rivals like Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders, according to a poll of Iowa voters. The telegenic 37-year-old is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. As you can read in Monaco's October issue, the Iowa caucus is the first in a series of state-by-state elections to choose the party's nominee to face Donald Trump next year. Needless to say, this is a momentous shift. The second item also concerns the Democratic race. Barack Obama has weighed in for the first time. Without naming names, he made an unambiguous plea for moderation on Friday, saying that the U.S. is still a country that is, quote, less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. It was an extraordinary intervention that included not-so-subtle digs at left-wing candidates like Warren and Sanders and praise for moderates such as Biden and Buttigieg. But Obama has a point. In the Trump era, most Democrats favor a return to normality over a hard lurch to the left. The Iowa poll found that 63% of voters would prefer a candidate with a strong chance of beating Trump, rather than a candidate who shares their views. The paradox is this. Voters prefer moderation over risk when it comes to ideas, but when it comes to candidates, they value an outsider more than a veteran. And that means Obama's best hope for moderation might just come in the form of inexperienced but refreshing Buttigieg, even over Biden, his safe but aging former vice president. That was Chris Jermak, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yoninka Fan and Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Steph Jungo and Jack Tewers. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye.